if I were to have my way, and um, if I had the power in one simple act to create radical changes within the few of us who are here, the thing I desire most is if we could really become a people who genuinely take on the concerns of others and feel it in a real sense and um, not just have a casual emotional response uh, to human need and not just human need but to the purpose of God. If that thing grips you it has an, a sense in which it it catapults your life in a way that you have no control over so much of yourself anymore. You know? Your energy, your drive, your focus, your money, your time, all of that just seemed to get sucked into a vortex that is completely God. Selfishness and arrogance, that thing is gone. I'm convinced that it is impossible for a man to have an interaction with God and still be arrogant. It is impossible for a man to have a strong interaction with God and still be self-consumed. Something about that experience empties you of yourself and it brings you to the end of yourself, which basically is the starting point at which God begins to work in your own life. Um, I really want to encourage you all to go, go back over some of those, the crosshairs, please go back over it. Um, I know some of the writing may be a bit difficult for some, um, we try to condense that into one page and no more. I mean, sometimes we have to literally cut and all that kind of stuff. You'd realize that even from the scripture that we started this week's cross here is with, there were so many things I wanted to package inside of there, but I had to kind of condense it into three. And if you pay close attention to those three very simple concepts, Jesus said, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. We, what, we don't, what we don't want here is a church that believes that we are a church because we have good preaching. That really does not qualify us to be a church. We are not a church because we have large numbers. That doesn't qualify us either. We're not a church because we have miracles and healing. That doesn't qualify us either. To me, the thing that gripped my heart reading those scriptures again when Jesus said, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, that thing resonated inside of me with such enormous vigor that um, I wanted to write on other things this week, but I really kind of pulled that back around and focused on that. And I'm going to continue writing on that again next week. Because Jesus said something quite interesting, but you have made it. But you have made it. And the word in the Greek is almost like, by your constant practice, this, it what, this is what it has become. Your constant practice has resulted in it becoming almost like the antithesis of everything I wanted it to be. And we can get so fixated on the opposite that we lose sight of what the true thing and the true focus is. Go back to those three points again in your crosshairs and you'd realize, number one, Jesus said, what I said in the crosshairs is that, listen, the primary characteristic of the house of God is prayer. That's the primary characteristic. That's the thing that ought to permeate this environment. As John said, if we do this right and if we build it right, 
when we have a moment like this, whether it be 50 minutes or 20 minutes, we want people to be popping because it's such a part of you that you can't help but say, let me add my voice to this prayer. Let me, let me join in and speak and pray over something. It's the primary characteristic of the house of God. Not the singing, not the worship, not the nice music. My house shall be a house of prayer, not a house of singing and music. My house shall be a house of prayer. Engaging God is the primacy of our, ex of, of our existence. The second thing we talked about is that emphasis on that word house. In the Greek, the word is oikos. Now, I just reduced the definition to about three. But the word oikos is the root word from which you get the English word eco economy, economics. It's the root word from which you get the word ecosystems. And so you have to read into that, that when Jesus said, you have made this into something else. And I said that a church that is prayerless is like, it's like a python in the Everglades. You know what that is like? You know, pythons in the Everglades is a foreign substance. People buy a little pet, they look all nice and colorful. When it grows to this, to this behemoth, they just throw it in the Everglades. And so these pythons in the Everglades, they are changing the ecology in the Everglades because they are killing off everything. And so when I said a church that does not pray is like a python in the Everglades. It's something that is anomalous. It is crazy. It is wrong. It is not designed for the environment. There's no such thing in God's perspective as a prayerless church. <laughs> but the moment you have a church that does not pray, that does not engage him, it's a python in the Everglades. The thing, it working, it's working against the society. A church that does not pray, it is like the garbage collectors going on strike. <laughs> because that is not its character. Praying is our natural character. Right? And the third point Jesus said, the third point that Jesus said, and he rehearsed what Isaiah said, we shall be a house of prayer for all nations. And the point I made in the, in the cross here is that the moment church becomes an ethnic entity, or it becomes a cultural entity, or it becomes a national entity, or it becomes a, a denominational entity, it is no longer a church. It is everything but a church, because praying for the nations mean that you take your focus out of us, we, I, and think about them, others. Because most of our prayer is fixated on God help me, help my family, my children, my grandchildren, my country. And, and we get focused on us, we, I. And it's always correct when you have a bunch of people when they begin to pray for Lou Perez, <laughs> when they begin to pray for the church down the street, and they pray for Ukraine. You pray for government leaders coming together this week in NATO. You talk about people starting to think about the most appropriate strategy to bring an end to a crisis. People in Ukraine are living in, down in the subways right now. Little children are dying. If that doesn't break your heart, I don't know what will. And you want to see a quick end to that. God has to intervene. And we know that Ukraine doesn't have a military, doesn't have military might the likes of Russia. And Putin is intimidating every other, every other government leader. Saying, if you only interfere with this war, then I will actually release the nuclear. That is intimidation. And God has to respond to that. God has to respond to that. And I, I want God to rain down brimstone upon the military power of, 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 of Russia and let Ukraine look more mighty than they really are. And I know it has all kinds of stuff out there. I know that the theory is that Ukraine basically is the aggressor. 
and they were involved in trying to intimidate the Russians on the West Coast. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff outside there. But in the middle of it all, what we want is not necessarily innocent human lives being destroyed in the crosshairs and the crossfire of the situation. We want God to intervene, right? And so I really want to encourage you to pray this week. And um, after a while, when, when, when you begin to live in that zone of constantly seeking God, it, it, it affects you. Eh? In the scripture John quoted this morning, um, David said, one thing I desire of the Lord. Now, can you imagine a guy who is the military leader of the country? He was the military leader of the country. He was the political leader of the country. This man was a husband. He was a father. And with his many responsibilities, he said, I want one thing in this life. One thing. One thing have I desired of the Lord. And that is the one thing I'll pursue after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord. That I may inquire in his temple. And you'd realize in David's mind, several things happen to be one thing. <laughs> that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. That I may inquire in his temple. And he said, that's all I want. Because David understands, if I get that one thing right, all my other responsibilities will fall into place in him. He doesn't say, well, God, make me a great political leader. Small, petty. Make me the great father. Small, petty. Make me the great leader that I could give leadership to this political company. One thing I desire. And that's all I want. Not to be a great pastor. I don't even care to be a pastor. It's not my intention to be one. <laughs> one thing I desire, not to be a great speaker. I don't care to do that either. One thing I want is, listen, I want to embrace God with such severity that in this one lonely life I have, even if I leave this life numbered among the unheralded and the unsung, I've accomplished one thing in life, that I've embraced God and I've made him my friend. And he made me his Everything else is meaningless after that. All right? We good? good? We had a good week this week? We had a good week this week. Okay, guys, let's, um, on, on Tuesday, we back out here for prayer. And we had a really excellent time on, 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 on Tuesday. Really excellent prayer meeting on Tuesday. It's just for one hour. And um, if at all, you could get off from work or you can just, um, just spare that one hour from 12 to 1. Then um, let us together... Invest in us becoming a house of prayer for all nations. All right? Can we do that? Okay. Um, let me quickly go over some stuff we did last week. Let me first of all start with some reviews. Go back over the review. Last week, something we want to do every week is kind of give you a sense as to what we did last week. So that what, what is the objective? We introduce it to the term. We want to avoid leakage. Right. <laughs> want to avoid leakage. Leakage is where we hear it, and in a couple of days we forget it. We want to avoid leakage. So we're doing this. This is just a review. We were in Hebrews chapter 11 last week, verses 13 to 16, and this is what Hebrews 11 talks about. Let me read all of Hebrews 11. And all these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them, and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, 
They desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Observe, not heaven. A heavenly country. In other words, a physical environment that has a heavenly component to it. A heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And we identified several principles. These are the highlights. These were the principles we highlighted last week. Principle number one. When we're talking about transition, you can no longer be trapped by the present. And we look, we're looking at the patriarchs as an example. None of them was trapped by the present, no matter what the present looks like, whether uncomfortable or whether comfortable. It says seeing things afar off. They were not trapped by the immediate. Transition requires that we have to liberate ourselves and we introduce the word, the chaff. Remember that word? We have, to, we, have to in, we have to liberate ourselves both from the chains and the chaff of the present. You cannot be trapped by the present. All of these patriarchs saw something afar off. Secondly, a new sense of acceptance, a new sense of acceptance, not rejection or indifference to the future, that you cannot be intimidated by the unknown. If you are committed to transition, you must be willing to embrace the unknown. It says all these died in faith, not receiving it, but they welcomed it from a distance. They saw something afar off and they welcomed it. Welcome means to reach out and pull it to yourself, to embrace it. You understand that point, right? There was no sense of rejection. Most of us always feel uncomfortable with the unknown. And then we create maxim or maxims and, and little idioms to justify our adherence to the old. You know, better the devil we know than the devil we don't. <laughs> That's just a nice way of saying, well, I am unwilling to venture beyond what I've grown accustomed to. <laughs> the third point we made last week is this. The present placement became woefully inadequate. It became strange and it became uninviting. The more you step beyond the present and the more you are intoxicated by the future that God has ordained for you, is the more the present becomes, you know, inadequate. You know, it's like, um, it's like there's, a, there's a concept in, 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 um, in international law, it's called regime change. Now, not what you think in terms of regime change. Regime change is where you have so outgrown your current environment that your current environment almost rejects you. You know, think about a person who grew up in the ghetto. They grew up in the ghetto. They lived in a little small apartment. They grew up with poverty, uh, uneducation, nothing inside of there. And that individual is taken out for a moment. And they engage in an education that expands them beyond the ghetto that they've grown accustomed to. You take them back to that ghetto, and that ghetto that they lived all their lives in suddenly becomes inadequate. Because their lives have been expanded. That's what they call regime change. Regime change is life that has so expanded to the point that your accustomed environment suddenly becomes woefully inadequate. And that's what happens to every person who's engaged in transition. That is, the present becomes inadequate. Listen to the cries of these patriarchs. The moment they saw something afar off, they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims right here. They saw something afar off, they suddenly confess that this environment is inadequate. I'm passing through. It's no longer home. The next point we mentioned last week is this. They designed a strategy 
to cut off opportunity to return to former positions. It says, if they have called to mind the country from which they came, they would have sought an opportunity to return to it again. Every time you make radical changes in your life, you have to design a system not to return to what you are committed to leaving. You have to design a system. Because if you don't design that system, you can easily find yourself just drifting right back to the very things you said you want to leave. That happens to young people. Well, I'm going to build a solid life. I'll be a wonderful husband. I will no longer beat my wife because I really want to change. But by next week, you do it again. <laughs> because have, saying you want to change does not activate the process, you know. You have to design a system. And so for these patriarchs, had they called to mind the country from which they came, they would have sought an opportunity to return to it again. And the other point we mentioned last week was this. What's it? The other one is God takes pleasure in partnering with people like these. The Bible says, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And the point you have to understand is this, that God is ashamed of some people that call themselves believers. <laughs> He's not ashamed to be called their God. That kind of people, God says, I would rejoice in saying, have you considered my servant Job? Have you considered John? Have you considered Mary? There's a certain quality of life that God prides and celebrates and rejoices over. For these patriarchs, with that mentality, he's not ashamed to be called their God. So that's where we were last week. All right? So let's pick up the story today. And let's jump into this. On the screen, you'll also see um, Bill has posted the link to the podcast. You could go back over and um, listen to these messages again and allow these things to really, really, really borrow its way into your heart and mind. You know, if you get it right, let me give you a nice word. I like words. There's something called airworm. You know what an airworm is? An airworm is something that literally lives inside of your mind that you find yourself constantly saying it, even though you're not thinking about it. You ever heard a song before? You know? You just heard a song. You know, just think about any song. You know? Raindrops are falling on the head. <laughs> and so you walk out of here and you jump in your car and you don't even realize it. You turn, da, 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 that's an airworm. <laughs> and all day, da, 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 that's an airworm. It just lingers in your mind without you thinking it's still there. That's an airworm. The so point, an airworm, an airworm. It is, a, it is a true word. It is a word. Check it out. It's called an airworm. An airworm is when something has literally gotten into your mind and without thinking, you find yourself constantly rehearsing it. <laughs> without thinking. I'm sure it all happened to you before, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. You just planted the seed for today. Yeah, you're going to be singing all day. <laughs> <laughs> And he'll be home. Honey, is, is um, lunch ready? Da, 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 da. Da, da. And then he'll say, I just can't get rid of this airworm. This airworm. <laughs> That's how we want the word of God to be inside of your heart. We want the word of God to be like an airworm. It just cannot get out. <laughs> All right? So go back and check out the, the podcast. Listen to it. Listen to it again. Get used to my real weird accent. Because I'm, in getting used to my accent... There are certain words I say that you don't hear it the first time. 
and the more you get used to my accent, you won't assume airworm is heirloom. <laughs> All right. Okay, let's look at these scriptures now. Today, I want us to get into this, right? And um, remember, I really want you all to pray this week as well for, for stability. It's on the, it's on the, the um, legislative agenda. For stability as we go through this transition. And that's important for us to pray this week. Right? Look at Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to um, work around these verses here. Philippians chapter 3. I'm in verses 10 to 16. And um, we're dealing with transitioning and what it looks like. Now, every single one of us, at some point in our lives, we had to negotiate some level of major change. Whether it be from singleness to marriage. Whether it be from being a single woman to becoming a mother. Whether it be from being a, a man to a father. Whether it be from just going through life depending on your parents to now having to depend on your own and work for yourself. Um, whether it be investments, whether it be uh, strategizing for your future. Every one of us at some point in time would have had to go through a season of change. And as a church right here, we are now in that radical process where we have to negotiate and invest in radical changes. And radical changes means that we are throwing off what we used to be in order for us to become what we ought to be. Now hear me well. <laughs> Throwing off what we used to be in order to become what we ought to be. Now that does not mean that we are critical of what has gone before us. The issue is not to be critical. And, and in looking at these principles this morning, as we talk about transitioning, you'll understand the issue is not being critical. And so we're not defining a transition by criticizing what has gone before, whether good, bad, or otherwise, it is the future that dictates or designs for us how we move forward. Listen to this. Eh? Read into this, and I want you to tell me what you're seeing, right? Philippians chapter 3, from verses 10 to 16. Hear, hear me. This is Paul. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Becoming like him, like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now this is Paul. The interesting thing is this. Is this. Paul is writing these verses at the end of his days. He's a prisoner in Rome. And uh, historically, Paul would die anywhere within about next two years after writing this particular epistle. He wrote several epistles while in prison in Rome. And so this is a guy who would have gone through all kinds of experiences. This is the end of his days. And can you imagine, after writing all of these epistles, investing in the advance of God's purposes all over Asia, investing in mentoring another generation of leaders like Timothy, this guy, if you looked at his track record, and if you looked at his resume, you'd realize a guy who has done so much for God, who has known so much about God, but at the end of his days, he says, I want to know him. Because knowing him is indeterminate. 
Indeterminate means it never stops. There's no point in time that you could depend on your 40 years of experience in knowing God as sufficient. There's never sufficient in knowing God. Right? Never sufficient. Indeterminate means it never stops. It never stops. You see, we human beings, we don't have indeterminate growth. We as humans, we grow and then we deplete. <laughs> you know, there's a point in your life, in all of our lives, where you were, in, where you were enjoying a growth spurt. You know, you were getting taller. Everything about your life, your hair was getting long. You found, you found yourself having hairs in certain parts of your body. All indicators of you're growing. <laughs> Hormones were acting in a certain way because you're growing. And then you hit a certain age and then suddenly you realize, oops, it's as though we are depleting. Because we don't enjoy indeterminate growth. There are few animals who, have, who enjoy indeterminate growth, like a, a, a crocodile. They have indeterminate growth. As long as they live, they grow. They are getting bigger, huger. Everything about a crocodile or an alligator, they enjoy indeterminate growth. They are constantly growing. We don't. But in the spirit, we have to apply that though. There's never a cutoff point. This is Paul. After having served God in all kinds of ways, he said, I want to know him. I want to know him. There's no point where you should be satisfied. Now listen to him further. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward, toward what is ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Jesus Christ. All of us, and this is, this is interesting, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if, for, if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you, only let us live up to what we have already attained. Now, listen, very interesting scriptures here. Now, remember that Paul is describing dynamic movements inside of his own spiritual consciousness, right? He's imprisoned. And in that state, he's saying, I want to know him. Undiscover him more. I want to apprehend this God even more fully. I want to at least come into a more profound realization of this God that I've subscribed to. Not that I've already obtained that. And I'm sure he's saying that to those who think, well, have you read your letters, Paul? Have you recognized the depth of your understanding in God? And despite this depth of understanding, he says, don't think that I've already obtained this. I've not yet obtained or attained this apprehension of God. But one thing I do, I'm constantly forgetting what is behind me. And I'm straining and striving and pressing to what is ahead. And that's a very interesting disposition. And then Paul puts this very interesting clincher at the end. He said, all of us who are mature must possess the very same attitude. In other words, if you are mature in God, part of your maturity strategy is I am constantly engaged in a transition, forgetting what is behind and pressing to what is, to what is ahead. That is a mature position. 
As a matter of fact, immaturity is being static. You understand me? Any man who does not want to move or change, then that's a static existence. That is immaturity. And so you may say, well, I just love things the way they've always been. I am a very mature man in God. No, no, you are not a mature man in God. As a matter of fact, listen to me. The blind man is the man who never likes change. Why? To the blind man, things remaining as they've always been empowers his blindness. So, I am blind. Assuming I'm blind. I stand here and I know, well, one step to the right and I am by the podium. I take a little step behind and I am on the chair. I want to get to John and I listen to John and I know where he's at. So I know normally John sits maybe about three steps to my left and I would find him right about here. And I know to get back to that podium, I just have to maintain the same rhythm, three steps to my right and I'm back to podium. Now, make some changes for that blind man. Move the podium away and put the chair away and he is still blind and he says well three steps to my left and i would find john one two three john should be there now three steps back to my right and i should find podium one two three ah uh, something is a bit crazy here someone has interrupted the normal order of my life Principle being only a blind man does not like change. You got the point? <laughs> only a blind man does not like change. So what's my point? Listen, Anderson, I, I have grown accustomed to things as they've always been. I've been in this church for the last five years. I am a mature man. I am over 50 years old. Don't talk to me about change. Ben, tell me who you are. Blind. <laughs> you get my point? Only a blind man does not like change. Paul said, listen, if you're mature, this is your natural configuration. You are constantly forgetting and constantly pressing. Now, there are several things I want you to get here. Let me define transition for you in that regard. Let me identify about four points, what transition looks like. Constantly forgetting and pressing forward. What does that look like? I'm going to just give you about four points, and then we're going to stop, right? You good? Yes. Now, point number one. Paul describes the coupling of two things as one thing. He says, this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and pressing to what is ahead. Have you realized that's two things? It's either Paul does not know maths, or he's a bit confused, or he understands spiritual technology. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and pressing to what is ahead. The point being, you cannot define transition by doing one and ignoring the other. You get my point? One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and pressing to what is ahead. If you think transition is forgetting what is behind, <laughs> you've just basically defined a process that is incomplete. The entire cycle requires forgetting and pressing. Forgetting and pressing. That's one thing. Two things becoming one basically means that 
You have to utilize both systems in order to arrive at one conclusion. The coupling of two things, Paul describes as one thing. Forgetting what was and pressing towards what will be are two inseparable actions. Hear me. The moment these two actions are uncoupled, we are engaged in a false process. The moment you uncouple the two, you are engaged in a false process. The moment you think, well, I'm just forgetting what is behind and I'm okay, it's a false process. Forgetting what was or abandoning the previous and not pressing on to the next is an incomplete exercise. Both of them must be done. So where we are right now as, as, a, as, a, as a team, we have forgotten and we are trying to negotiate arrival. Both of them must be incorporated in this exercise, right? Second point, second point. Forgetting, or rather put it this way, velocity, velocity and the priority is on the future, not on the past. Priority is on the future to which you are going, not on the past that you are leaving. Let me say that again. Priority is placed on the future to which you are going, not on the past from which you are leaving. You could put it another way, that transition could be negotiated in one of two ways. You could either be pushed by the past or you could be drawn by the future. From Paul's perspective, it is the future that beckons his decisions, that informs his decisions. One thing I do, I'm forgetting. He said, I want to know Christ. I have not yet attained these things. But whatever I am desiring, something I am desiring in God is what beckons me forward. Not all what I've learned in God before. Are you understanding me? It is the future. Hear me, brother. You see, in a moment of transition, most people develop a sense of um, obsession with the past. And so very often people say, well, you know what? I just didn't like the church I was in. The pastor was horrible. The preaching was ridiculous. The worship was boring. And so I had to make a decision. Something is wrong with your actions right there. Because if you do that, then you are allowing your past to inform your decisions. You see, people get very, very, very obsessed with the past, condemning or even applauding the past, and all of it can easily create a sense of paralysis. Why? Because let's assume your past was wonderful. You had an excellent church, everything was wonderful, everything was amazing, then what informs your current decisions? Hear me again. Let me give you, let me give you two examples, right? Two examples. If you define transition, only by the bad experiences you had, and so you want to make it better, then again, you are engaged in a process that could create paralysis. Listen to this, this example. In the book of Hebrews, the Bible talks about Joseph. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about all of these mighty heroes of faith, right? By faith, this one did that, that one did that. Have you ever stopped and realized it says, by faith, Joseph gave instructions concerning his bones. How is that? How does that even qualify to be a faith action? Well, guys, you know, when you're leaving, take my bones with you. (laughs) 
But this is the point. This is the point you have to understand. When Joseph gave instructions concerning his bones, Israel was living in the best of Egypt. They were enjoying the best of the land, the most fertile piece of real estate. Life was wonderful. They were not slaves. Remember, only when Joseph died, another Pharaoh emerged who enslaved Israel. When Joseph talked about his bones, Israel had a wonderful experience. Life was bountiful and amazing. Yet Joseph said, this is not home. One day you would leave this land and all that you are currently enjoying, you would leave behind you. And when you're going, take my bones with you. You have to understand the point in that, huh? Because most of us define transition as a bad past that you are leaving. But when transition is defined by a good past that you are going to something that God has ordained, that's another level of transition altogether. Are you following me? You get, you, you get, you getting me? Transition cannot only be defined as the past that you are, the bad past that you are leaving. Transition has to be defined by an ordained future to which you are going. Paul says, listen, don't think that I've attained. Yes, I've written many epistles, but I've not yet discovered God to the fullness. And that is what drives me. That is what I'm drawn to. I am not in any which way obsessed with all that I've done before, good or bad. Some people are intoxicated by, by their own success. And that alone is enough to create paralysis. Well, I've built this house, I have this amount of money, I've had this business, and you are intoxicated by your success. Transitions are negotiated along a path where people have sight of an ordained future and they are driven to see that future become their current reality. And that's what drives it. That's what drives it. Whether the past is pleasant or whether the past is horrible. The thing that defines your movement is not the past that you are leaving, it's the future to which you are going. And for us in this community, we, we could applaud all that has happened in the last five years. We can rejoice over that. Maybe there are aspects of it that we can weep over. But what we are currently defined by is not the past. It's the future to which we are going. And the future to which we are going is not a church of 15, 20 persons who have a wonderful sing-along on a Sunday morning. What we want to do is be a bulldozer in the spirit. In the spirit realm, we must become a bulldozer. In the future that we are going to, this church must be a strong praying church. There must be a hum going up to heaven on a daily basis that the heavens are aware of. That's the future to which we are going. It's a future that is global in its reach. It is not fixated in a few people in this building. With me? Next point. We're talking about transition. The next point. Very simple. Very simple. Transition is never organizational. Transition is never organizational. It is never transactional. It is always profoundly revelational. It is not organizational. It is not transactional. It is profoundly revelational. What do I mean by that? 
You see, transactional and organizational, that deals with, okay, well, we want to become. As a group, we have to become large. Transactional is like, uh, we are constantly talking among ourselves about what we gonna do and how we gonna get done and all this kind of stuff. Revelational is an awareness of God that erupts inside of your inner man. Because whatever you want to do, if there's no comprehension of God, we will never get it done, you know. Trans transition is not organizational. It is not transactional. It is revelational. Listen to Paul. What do you think is driving Paul's pursuit to abandon what was behind him in order to apprehend what is before him? What is driving that pursuit? Is it a large organization? Is it a business? Is it a big church? It is, greater, is it greater influence? Is it greater books and uh, whatever else? It is not organizational. It is not transactional. At the heart of Paul's abandoning in order to embrace is one thing. I want to know Christ. Everything else bleeds out of that. The more I apprehend God, the more I discover God, the more I'm, I'm close to God, the more proximate I am in God, is the more everything bleeds out of that. The moment you define transition as a transactional experience, you have already aborted the exercise. The moment transition is an organizational exercise, you have already aborted the exercise. The pursuit to leave what is behind and embrace what is before is driven by one ultimate desire. I want to know Christ. I want to have a, a, an awareness of a more urgent God. I want to know him in 2022 more profoundly than I knew him in 2021. I want to apprehend him. I want to stand close to him. I want to become more aware of him. I want to know his heartbeat. I want to have a sense as to what are his priorities. And those are the things that informs that, it, that will inform the decisions we make, the organizations we build, the transactions we have. The moment transactions become the priority, we are putting the cart before the horse. What we have to discover first is God. Everything else comes thereafter. At the heart of our transition is not trying to build a big church. That is not what we want. At the heart of this transitional exercise is not to have fancy equipment and nice building. That will come too. At the heart of all of this, listen, everyone in this room must come into a more profound revelational awareness and apprehension of God in the most overwhelming way. I want to hear of dreams that you have that you've never had before. I want to hear of conversations you're having with God now that you've never had before. Because the more you enlarge in him and you see him, it changes your conversation, your dialect. It changes your petition. That your conversations become less about the car that you want and the house you want and the land you want becomes more a matter of the God you want to stand strong inside of your heart and mind. And that's what we want here. Right? And that is at the heart of what we want to pursue. I want to know Christ. <laughs> Everything else, listen, I'm going to abandon that. Paul said, this is how the mature ought to live. How the mature lives? Lives with this overwhelming sense of leaving what is behind and moving to what is ahead. That's how we live. 
We cannot be settled. Ask, ask yourself, am I comfortable with church as it is right now? Are you comfortable? When you arrive on a Sunday morning, is this like, it's like whoopee-doo, you're looking forward to this experience? Be honest with me. I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't look for, listen, man, I, I you know, I don't because there's something more that I want. This does not excite me. Please understand me. This does not excite me. And I mean, can I be okay if I'm honest? This doesn't excite me. Rolling out of my bed on a Sunday morning uh, in the cold in Niagara to stumble into this building that has about 15, 20 of us, that doesn't excite me. And if you're honest with yourself, does this excite you? No, it doesn't. <laughs> I was in Trinidad a couple weeks ago. Had 1,700 people in a conference. Start teaching at 10 a.m. And I did not, I mean, we, we didn't stop until sometime about 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night. The energy, the pulsation, the hunger, the drive, that excites me. <laughs> Now, even that, you know, I mean, what do we want, man? What do we have to get here? You have to push things to the point where passion and vision and purpose is so alive and buoyant that when we gather together, it does not revolve around nice preaching and singing. It, it revolves around us celebrating what has happened and us pointing our minds to what we can do in the week to come. We can do this, right? We can do this. Come on, let's have a talk. What did you hear? I'm far from finished, but let's have a talk. Yep. What, did, what, are, you, what are you hearing? About the, about the Lord and about wanting, you know, it's like, like seeking first the kingdom. Yep, it is. It's, 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 it's seeking first the kingdom, but you see, but I think that, um, it, it is, you could say yes it is, yes I know it is, but um, when Paul talks about apprehending him, embracing him, it is, it is a very deeply personal, intimate, overwhelming experience with God that um, does not involve, well, doings and actions and transactions. It's just a matter of just, like, let me apprehend this God and come into a more profound awareness of who he is. That profound awareness, uh, at the end, will inform how you do what you do and the correctness with what you do, how you do, all right? So yes, it is seeking the kingdom, but um, in, in, in Paul's mind, this is not just seeking the kingdom as it were. This is like, let me only embrace, embrace God. Yeah. You see, there's a, there's a sense in which, um, and this is something we're going to talk about when we start talking about the kingdom. There's a sense in which um, you embrace the king's domain, that's one thing. The kingdom is the king's domain. But then there's something called the king of that kingdom. Embracing and in pursuit of the king is an entirely more dynamic thing than just in God, involving a, in a random pursuit of the kingdom. Yeah. All right? Yeah. Anyone else? What did you hear? What did you understand? What do you understand? He was in, Paul was in prison at that time. Right. It's interesting that, that may have, God may have used that occasion to have him see, eliminate all the other things from him. Good. 
seek more of Christ. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I can get your point because sometimes you could get so inundated in doing that you have to almost like come to a point where there is no doing except pursuing. You know, it's like you can no longer get so caught up because it happens to all of us. Huh? I, 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 I am quite grateful to God that, you know, um, the way I grew up as a child, it has informed in no small way how I am as an adult. Um, when, I was, when I was about seven years old, my father and my mother basically were gone. I was an adult at the age of seven. Um, my mother was an American. She flew back to America because my father was a horrible man. And my father was an alcoholic, so um, um, he wasn't the best guy that there was. We lived in a house that was so small, not even a house, a little room that was so small. I, me and my two brothers slept in a bed about this wide. It was so bad that, um, listen, I used to sleep on the, uh, three of us slept on that and I slept on the edge. Right now, I have a king-size bed, and I still sleep on the edge. <laughs> it affects you. But when I was seven years old, I, um, I, I was sleeping on a hard floor, and I said, I mean, when I grow up, I don't ever want to be like my father. I don't ever want to have a wife like my mother, and I'll never have a child like myself. And I went and found a, I got a job, seven years old. I started working at, when I was seven years old. And so out of that, I developed what I call a nightlife. I would go to school during the daytime, seven years old, Go to school in the daytime, and I went to work at night. And so I would work at the age of seven, I'd work until 2 a.m. cleaning chicken in a fast food outlet to take care of myself. And that discipline, that rigorous discipline from the age of seven, no time for play, no time to fool around, because this is like survival mode. You are seven years old, you have no father, you have no mother, and you're equally aware that at any point in time, the wrong decision, and you could become a gangbanger, you could become a drug lord, you could become a member of a gang. None of which I wanted to be. I was totally committed to at least making a viable, meaningful contribution to life from the age of seven. And that discipline has always been with me. And I think God just kind of puts his grace on top of that, and that makes it even more dynamic. But what, 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 what Ron is saying is important because sometimes you could get so caught up in activities that you lose sight of your priorities. And I, I am very, very conscious of that. In, in, even in the midst of doing, 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 I'm very conscious of the need to kind of pull back, slow down, think again, and then act differently. And that is important. And so a guy like, like Paul, now locked in a prison, could no longer be running engage in another missionary journey. Now he has a moment to stop and think. And so I totally understand that. And sometimes God has to bring you, and that's something we'll talk about, you have to identify the inflection point. The point that forces you to think in a certain way in order for you to step into the future that God wants for you. For Paul, could be prison. That's the inflection point. When there's no more Missionary journeys, there's no running here, there's no um, um, people in Ephesus to build, there's no Pamphylia, there's no city to go to. You're locked in a prison when all you have is your own thoughts and God. That's an inflection point. Good point. Anyone else? What did you hear? Yeah, Bill. Right. 
Right, right. That's true. This is, this is more than just a matter of saying, well, um, you know, well, I had a little interaction with God. This is like, listen, he is now almost like um, imprisoned in my consciousness. He lives, he's imprisoned in my heart, my mind. I've taken, I'm going to hold that, I'm gonna, I've taken custody of this God. He's imprisoned in, the, in my existence. And that's more than saying, well, I've had a nice interaction this morning with God. It was so wonderful. I wish it and I felt goosebumps. <laughs> no, it's like having him right there. That's good. Good point. Anyone else? What did you hear? Yes, my dear. Right. We need to wake up and and, and also the, and the mindset that Paul was in prison is actually not correct. Paul was exactly where he was supposed to be because that's where the Lord put him. Um, and in my in my in what I feel is that uh, Paul was where he was supposed to be. He was actually in heaven on earth. He was uh, so close to God, and uh, you know people think that he had these walls and these windows. He didn't have any. He was he was marching to the light. Good perspective. Very, very good perspective. Both, both of them are very excellent perspective. Um, the point is that, yes, this is, the, this is the attitude of the mature. This is how we ought to be. This is how we live. This is how we operate. And I equally agree that, listen, the, the physical confinement that Paul was in is not, did not literally limit his, his perspective, his apprehension, and his sight. You know, it's like, um, you know, John was in the Isle of Patmos. It's an interesting way the Bible says in Revelations that John was... He was in the Isle of Patmos, but the Bible says he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. That means the prison of Patmos did not deny him access to the next realm and the next thing. He was in the Isle of Patmos, but he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. That, that he was never imprisoned, never shackled. And so, yes, I agree. Anyone else? Yes, yes, my dear. You know, it was like the, um, the scriptures talk about how the Israelites were in captivity and they hung up their hearts, harps and they, they stopped singing, mm -hmm. worshiping God, they stopped seeking God. And it was like that was the place that I was in. But you're addressing it right now is like a door opening. And I know that that I, that I may know him will be the right. worm I have. <laughs> Good. You know, it will be constantly, every Beautiful. So excellent, excellent, excellent. Father, let that be the portion for your daughter. Put your hand so profoundly upon her life these days that the words that she has mentioned here this morning in terms of her commitment, in terms of that fire, in terms of that pursuit, in terms of that apprehension, Father, let the days to come be so overwhelmingly amazing Cause her to enjoy you in ways that she's never done before. Cause her to feel and to become aware of and to sense your presence so very proximate that it brings her 
almost like beyond what she has ever even considered, imagined, or experienced, even in the days when she thought she was so passionately and so committed. Father, bring her to a place that even outweighs that. Yes. Lord, I pray that in the name of Jesus. Yes. Amen. Yes. Amen. Yes. Yeah. Who, yeah, Debbie, you're about to say something? <laughs> Right. The main point, because it goes through, I did not do this, I'm not doing that, and he's in prison. Right. His point was until he gets to be perfect. Right. That's good. That's good. Another, the thing is, um, remember, remember I said earlier that, that sometimes we can get intoxicated by our own successor? You know, I was um, talking to a group sometime last week, and I was kind of making the distinction between your strength and your weakness. And sometimes our own strength can be our greatest weakness. And um, we get so, you know, think about a guy like Paul. And Paul's, Paul talks about, not that I haven't already obtained. He begins to focus on what he has not done as opposed to just rejoicing over what I've done. Because you can get so blinded by, you know, well, um, listen, I've written so many books. I've been to so many journeys. I've mentored so many people, started so many churches. And while you are going down that entire catalog of accomplishments, you are missing the point. <laughs> and the point is, God is not impressed. Hear me. God is not impressed in what you have done. He's waiting to be impressed in what you are required to do and you have not yet done. <laughs> right? And that's such a good point. Not that I have already obtained. Not that I have already obtained. Sometimes um, um, the, the, the things that you have done are the very things that are denying you from doing what you ought to do. Because you get too caught up in like, well, I've, you know, I've done this, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that, you know. And, nah, good point. Not that I've already obtained. Not that I've already obtained. Good point. Let's get one more. Who's next? Who's the last person? Yep. Right. That prevent us from uh, from knowing God more and recognizing who He is and what He's done in our lives. Right. And uh, that that's just one little piece of my takeaway. Right. Right. That's good. Sometimes you don't even realize that eh? that's the truth. Eh? You know, it's amazing that that um the word that Paul says is forgetting what is behind you. And that word forget, we're going to talk about it next week, is epilanthanomai. It's a word in the Greek. And of the several meanings of that word, it literally means to remove an inscription. You know what an inscription is like? Do you know that um, if you develop a habit as a person, those habits are informed. Your very brain develops what they call grooves. Those grooves in your minds are the things that causes you, that will cause you, to do what you do without even thinking. It is the groove in your mind. Let's say if you develop, if every morning you develop the habit of drinking coffee to start your day on the 12th, 13th, or 14th day, a groove is established in your mind that a glass of water will never satisfy the beginning of your day because there's a groove in the mind. Your mind develops grooves. And that's for real, eh? You, you, you talk to a neurologist, he will tell you those are real issues. You, you develop grooves in your mind. Uh, if you develop the attitude of drinking water 
or drinking a, a Coke to solve your thirst, water will never satisfy you because the grooves are established in your mind. Now, when Paul talks about forgetting, it is actually filling those grooves. It is almost like creating new habits, canceling out the normal things that you would do without thinking. There are things you do without thinking. Grooves are established in your mind based on habit, based on history, based on relationships, based on experiences. All of those things create grooves in your mind. The way you pray is born out of certain grooves you establish in your mind. The rhythm of your prayer, the rhythm of your reading the word, the rhythm of you even discovering principles in the word, they are all born out of grooves that have been established in your mind. When Paul said forget, it is a matter of you canceling those patterns and almost like creating a brand new trajectory that you never had there before. And that's a really good point. Sometimes you don't even know how loyal you are to some of those issues of the past. You don't even realize it because the grooves are there. And, you, and those things are just happening without even effort. It just happens because grooves in your mind. Right? Good point. But it takes effort to make It does. Groove. It takes effort to create a new groove. As a matter of fact, they said, really, to create a groove in the mind, all it takes is 10 days in a you know when the Hebrew boy says, just give us um, uh, vegetables for 10 days? The theory is anything you do consistently for 10 days on the 11th day happens automatically. If you train yourself to get up at 2 a.m. for 10 days, on the 11th day you can go to bed at midnight. Your body wakes up at 2 o'clock because a groove is established in the mind. <laughs> you know, forget the idea. You can't teach old dogs new tricks. That doesn't exist. <laughs> that doesn't exist. All right. <laughs> All right. So basically, you're saying this has been a groovy experience. It's been a really groovy. <laughs> it's been smooth. Very groovy. <laughs> you all understood this this morning? We'll talk more about this when we, go back, when we get back together next week. We'll talk about that whole issue of forgetting. Look at that word because... Um, you know, I, when I was a child, um, I told you a little bit. One of these is I'll give you the whole story. But um, I had an aunt who met me many years after. I'd already gone to school and um, built my first house and had all kind of stuff. And, and uh, she sat, sat with me one day and she said, um, Andy, um, most of my family called me Andy. She said, do you remember when you were about six years old this happened? I said, I, I don't know. I, I, I can't remember. And then she said, she remind, she's trying to remind me of a whole bunch of experiences that I had as a child. And I really, I just had no recollection. There was nothing in my mind. And she said, these were her words. She said, young man, you have no idea how much God has delivered you from a past. Because even those things were still in your mind, you'll have a lot of people to hate. And I think God has done that with me over the years. There are certain things that he just plucks out of my memory. I have no recollection of it, none. Not even the most minuscule. Not even the most minuscule. And those memories are some of the things that sometimes keep us loyal to our past. We have to learn to forget. That's the Manasseh principle. You have to learn to forget. That's what, that's what Joseph said. The Lord has taught me to forget. <laughs> 
Because that is the basis upon which you basically step up in life. Because if you don't forget, brother, you're going to hate your brothers who throw you, as a, who throw you in a pit. If you don't learn to forget, you're going to hate Potiphar's wife. You're going to hate the butler and the baker and the jailer. You're going to go through life hating everybody. Everybody you hate. <laughs> and purpose is being aborted because you are so absorbed in hating everybody. <laughs> purpose is aborted. The Lord has taught me to forget. And you name your first child that, Manasseh. <laughs> the Lord has taught me. Okay. Let's pray. Father, we are in the middle of a severe purpose. There are so many things ahead of us that we don't even know what it looks like. Lord, we see things almost like, as your, as your word says, we see men like trees. It's still blurry. We have a sense as to what you want to bring us into. And there are certain aspects of the call of God upon my life that gives me a sense as to how you do what you do. But God, we are not loyal to any of those things. Here we are, trying to design a a pathway where you could descend in the most marvelous way in this city. All we ask, God, is help us. Forgive us in the areas where we stumble, where we fumble, where we just don't do it right. Give us sight as to how we must do what we should do so that you'll be honored and you'll be pleased. God, bring the right people around us. Uh, supplement my own stupidity, God. Supplement my stupidity. The areas that I don't know, the areas that I'm ignorant of, God, bring people around. Bring John's other people who could add to the strength that I carry and, and, and erase the ignorance that I have. Father, I ask that you will do that for us because um, if you look deep in our hearts, you'd realize that we are but a people who only want to do that which will give glory and honor to your name. God, look at the integrity with which we want to do what we want to do. And even in our feelings, God, note the purity with which we want to do this and help us to do it so that you'll be honored and you'll be glorified. Bless your people this week, enrich their lives. Take healing and sickness away from them. The concerns and the cares they carry, whether it be for their pets, whether it be for their loved ones, whether it be for their families, whether it be for their children, whether it be for themselves, God, look upon the concerns of your people this week and enrich their lives and bless them and stand close to them and, and bring them to a place of bountiful, bountiful blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 amen.